electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Frank, and welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Stick with tech for 2024, says our market guest. Not just any tech, names she's been buying like the one she's bullish on all year long that just had its biggest yearly gain in two decades. We'll give her a victory lap and ask what she's bullish on for 2024. Speaking of which, could it be the year, believe it or not, of the metaverse. The world's biggest tech company is stepping into it as a battle for meta domination looms. We'll look at who's actually best positioned. And we have a special three buys into bail today with some under the radar names in the EV trade, including one set to capitalize on the expansion in more ways than one. And Gina Sanchez is a buyer. She joins us ahead. But on the last trading day of 2023, let's get to Dom Chu. Dom with a look at just how big of a year it's been. Time to take stock, Kelly, so to speak, right, in literal terms and figurative terms as well. Uh, We should start off with the action for today because it's right across the screen, but not really a lot so. It's just marginally, fractionally to the downside here. And remember, for the major indices, we're either pulling off of record high levels or highs for the year or those that are close to record high levels. But the Dow Industrial is now down about one quarter of one percent. The S&P 500, 47.62, down about 20 points, one half of one percent declines there. And two-thirds of 1% for the NASDAQ composite to the downside to the tune of 103 points. 14,992 is the last trade there. But, of course, as we take a look back on the year that was, it has been a massive move higher for the major indices, a banner year for some. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up 13.5%, a very good year. 24% gains for the S&P 500 on a year-to-date basis. And the Nasdaq composite, the real star there, you can see up about 43% so far this year. So keep an eye on how that develops as we, as we head towards the closing bell. From a sector perspective, it's been the heavy lifting done by those so-called Magnificent Seven stocks, those ones in tech, media, and telecom that have done a lot of the heavy lifting. For the tech sector, it's up 55% year-to-date. Communication services, many of those media companies, as a basket, up 51%. But, of course, big tech Internet companies driving that trade. And the utility sector down 11 percent, the biggest laggard in the S&P 500. As for the individual stock stories of the year, the upside has been fueled, like I said, by many of those tech and telecom names. But NVIDIA far and away on the computer chip side of things with artificial intelligence up 237 percent. Meta platforms up 194 percent, part of that big communication services trade. And then even Royal Caribbean up 163 percent in the resurgence for many travel related names. So there we go. The year 2023, in a nutshell, Kelly, we'll see if the story changes in the last couple of hours. I'll send things back over to you. And by the way, Happy New Year, Kelly. It's been a great time hanging out with the exchange, and I'll see you on Power Lunch later on. Like We like it so much, Dom. We're going to give a whole hour of it uh, next hour. We're looking forward to that, our Dominic Chu. The prospect of looming Fed rate cuts has helped fuel the market's recent winning streak. The probability for a March cut is now at 85 percent, while cuts in May and June are fully priced in. But my next guest says the market's getting ahead of itself and will be disappointed when those cuts don't materialize. Joining me now is Bill Lee. He's chief economist at the Milken Institute, CNBC's Rick Santelli is also with us. Welcome to you both. Bill, I'll just start with you. Why, why the pushback? 
Well, I think in order for the the market to be correct, we're going to have to start seeing some weakening in the real GDP or some some real fall off in the inflation rate that gets us to or below the Fed's target very quickly because the Fed is already programmed in three or four rate cuts uh, going forward. But to accelerate it to this early means that something has gone wrong. Something is not uh, in their Fed forecast and likely the, the market is worrying perhaps about the weakness uh, that, that's yet to come because of that tightening that we've done. One of the problems, though, is that this equity market doesn't show that. So I think that it's got to be in the very low inflation rates that the markets are anticipating. And maybe if that is a surprise, that's a good surprise. So the only thing I'd say about that, Bill, obviously being sympathetic to that point of view, is it is possible that uh, doing rate cuts because inflation has receded so quickly is a perfectly fine reason for doing them. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, right now, the, the problems that real rates are really historically very high. It's well above two, two and a half percent. And because the Fed has announced that it's pivoted, the long rates have come down, as Rick knows, uh, like, like crazy. And, and right now, the real rates are down to about one and three quarters or so on, on a five year basis. Well, that's about the right level for the Fed to have to sustain a robust recovery. Um, in order for us to really have high real rates, we're going to have to have the kind of productivity growth we saw in the 90s. And that's perhaps what the markets are betting on, because NVIDIA and all the AI uh, chip stocks are sort of hinting that we might get a burst in productivity of the sort that we saw in the 90s. And in that case, we really can have high real rates and very, very low inflation. Right. And, and Rick, maybe you can refresh my memory. I'm sure someone on Twitter can. Uh, back then, Alan Greenspan was able, I think it might have even been Yellen way back in the day. But anyway, Greenspan was able to correctly discern this productivity pickup. It's a little hard to see in real time if it's happening, but I guess the steady GDP data could, and steady labor market data could tell us if we're getting the good kind of, of disinflation. Yeah, the issue is, is that nobody knows how inflation will ultimately behave. We don't know if it's linear. We don't know if it's going to have a couple of pops. And when it comes to the Fed Fund Futures contract, the Fed should consider the relationship a good one. They use Fed Fund Futures to discern and send out all their messages. And the uh, relationship between the markets and Fed Fund Futures and the actual activity of the Fed has been pretty much spot on. So if we're starting to see something build in futures, that means the central bank has to address it in nearby meetings because they will not, and I underscore, they will not disappoint a market that's priced something in. They need the markets. Now, that doesn't mean you're not going to see differentiation along the yield curve. I personally think that they are going to be forced to lower rates, and I'm not so sure that force is even the right word. But I do see that they're going to have to quell the market a little bit on expectations, or they're going to have to make sure they're in sync. There is no other way. And finally, when it comes to Fed fund futures, the amount of horsepower built into the easing cycle is easily evident by looking at any of the contracts for next year and especially Jan 25 because it's a clean month, as Steve Leisman and I like to say, no Fed meeting. But look at the breadth of the rally that started when rates peaked in the middle of October and you'll see how intense the market is pricing and how much pressure it will put on the Fed to make sure the market's message is in sync with theirs. And maybe I could put you both on the spot a little bit just in honor of, of looming New Year's Eve and ask about predictions um, or anticipations for next year. I mean, Bill, you're obviously sort of saying if we get these rate cuts, it's a weak economy. And if not, rates might be stickier than expected. But in what other ways? Productivity is a good one to dwell on. In what other ways do you think the economy might surprise us? 
if we have the disinflation that the markets are, are anticipating, if we look at like the six-month uh, PCE inflation, it's down at the Fed's target. If that were to continue, we've got these rate increases, and Rick's going to be absolutely right. But And the messaging from the, the forward markets, uh, the forward guidance that the Fed has provided to let the markets drop like that, is going to be absolutely right. But if stubbornly high core inflation stays above 3% for the next three prints, I think we're going to see some delays in the, in the timing of these rate cuts. Do you agree, Rick? You know, I, I do agree to some extent, but I continue to say that we, we shouldn't take our eye off the ball. Much of what happens with rates next year is going to have a lot to do with things like electricity, the handoff to EVs. I know it's a topic that's well-worn like an old pair of slippers, but in the end, the most stubborn areas of inflation are where the government tries to impact the economic decisions made by consumers and change their preferences. And that is going to make costs from everything from natural gas and electricity higher. And all of those costs get passed on. Think about diesel fuel. Yes, maybe the price is lower than it was last year, but it certainly isn't lower than it was pre-COVID. Rick, maybe I, the way I would ask it to you is, do you think the biggest story of 2023 is the level that rates went to? or the extent to which they've fallen from the highs. We almost had three years in a row of losses in bonds, and no, then we saved it. No, I think the big it. story for 2024 is going to be how long rates are bucking the trend, how the yield curve will not only de-invert, it's going to steepen. And it's going to steepen because servicing our debt in the end is going to be a monumentally important issue to longer-dated treasuries, despite the Fed's influence on short-dated treasuries. And that would be quite something, wouldn't it? Gentlemen, for now, we'll leave it there. Thank you both, Bill Lee and Rick Santelli. My next guest says most strategists got everything wrong about this year. The recession didn't happen. Bonds didn't outperform stocks. The Nasdaq didn't drop as expected or underperform. In fact, the Nasdaq 100 just hit a record high this week, and she's been bullish on tech all along, including on Intel, which is up more than 90% this year, and she thinks it can grow from here. So for a little victory lap and her 2024 picks. Let's bring back Kim Forrest, CIO at Boca Capital Partners. Kim, it's great. You know, a little round of applause. Now, feel free to mention any raspberries, so to speak, if there were ones that uh, didn't work out so well <laughs> either. No, thanks for that, for that um, you know, shout out on Intel. I have to tell you this. I've been an analyst, uh, sell-side analyst, buy-side analyst, and portfolio manager. And we all like getting paid for our ideas, but what we really want and people to do is say, you were right. So <laughs> I love this. So thank you for that. So true. But, and and um, I have to add, I'm, I'm probably one of those who is deeply skeptical of Intel's turnaround. Oh. And so and you would you would keep saying, but do we do we give them, you know, we, we can say the stock was cheap and maybe now it's re-rate, but like give us the full story of what do you think the valuation was? What is it now? What could it be? What should it be? Sure. Well, I'm looking way far in the future. And what I'm looking for Intel to do is do what Pat Gelsinger promised, which is return the company to a company that creates products that people are dying to, to buy. And I don't necessarily mean PCs. I'm talking more about data center products and, of course, AI. So I think that he has the experience of working at that company for a very long time in the beginning of his career and knows who's who and how to get this done. And I think he's been there long enough, got some things turned around. And that's part of 
um, why Intel has grown this year. But really, his other plan is to make it into a fabricator, a foundry for other de people's designs. And I think this is incredibly important in many ways. Um, the company already has a footprint you know, outside of Taiwan, which that's kind of important because um, we've lived through uh, COVID where we couldn't get um, semiconductors when we desperately needed them. And I think having a global supply chain is just prudent. And the company continues to expand in places like um, Germany and Israel, and they're doing it with, you know, some tax rebates or government funding. And, you know, that's a blessing and a curse, but they are getting it done. And it's a big, heavy lifting financial problem that's going to need, you know, close to a decade to really prove out. But I'm a believer in the management. And that is one of the key things that I look at in a company is, is the management pointed in the right direction and can they do it? And I think recent history has shown us that the answer to that is yes. And in some ways, Intel. even though people talk about how this was the year of the Magnificent Seven and things like that, I mean, this conversation shows that stock picking is still really important. I mean, literally isolating Intel as the story and watching it re-rate. So do you think that it'll, it'll keep re-rating higher? I do. And remember now, you know, with these new capabilities, they're going to have a very different looking balance sheet and a very different looking income statement. And all of that has to be factored in. And that's why I'm uncomfortable giving any kind of price target or even range for what I expect, because it's all going to change. The mix is going to change. But what they have to show is they can fundamentally deliver products to clients. And I think that answer is yes. And the other thing that I always look for in most of, well, all of my stocks that I have is, are they going to outcompete the competitor, right? And I think they can. I just do. AMD is another name that you like here uh, that's done quite well. And it's interesting, you're kind of picking up on a theme that the economists were just discussing. You say tech will continue to work because it's the only way companies can generate meaningful amounts of productivity. So for those of us, you know, I acknowledge who are more bearish on the economy, broadly speaking, it's kind of like no matter what you think is going to happen, you could make a case for these names being the place that uh, still benefit from earnings growth and still see capital flows. Absolutely. And here's what the missing piece is for me personally. I would love to be recommending software stocks that I think could grow, right? And that have this really long track record in front of them and are not just point products. But I don't see any of that on the landscape for this new world of AI. So I think the best way to, cha uh, to, um, to go after that growth of productivity, because we don't know what software companies are going to win, is to go down one level to the hardware. And that's really why I've been a bull on semiconductors. Companies have been woefully remiss in trying to, to use technology in new and interesting ways in the past 15 years. I've been looking for new technology to invest in with respect to software. And I love Microsoft. I think they're going to be a winner in the short term and probably the long term. But again, their mix isn't all that interesting to me. I'd really love hmm. to find that, oh, maybe OpenAI goes public or something like that, where they are a pure play providing productivity directly to companies. You would want so that you could bet on OpenAI. That would make you like OpenAI, not whoever. 
not my got, I got what you're saying. Let me, Kim, let me but, ask you because we rarely talk about it, but as people are piecing the, their thoughts together for 2024, are there smaller names that, you know, you think are interesting and worth a look? There are. There are. And probably about half of our um, portfolio mix is in smaller names. You have to be liquid, though. So you have to have a market cap over a billion for me to be interested in you. But here's the secret. And we've been able to do really well, you know, pretty much my whole career because I've had this mix of large companies and smaller companies. But you get smaller companies that have good processes where you, you can see that they are focused on producing good products for their client set, whether that's retail or, you know, business to business. And then two things happen. They either grow into larger companies, that's always good, and reward shareholders, or they get bought out. And I think that that has been missing largely since 22. The amount of mergers and acquisitions have been greatly reduced. And because of the lower interest rate um, environment, I can see these high-quality companies coming back into focus um, for um, you know larger companies to buy them. So hmm. I'm super excited about 24 for that. All right. Do you want to name any in particular, or just as kind of a, a general theory? No, they're too small. Yeah. Sorry. No, understood. Better safe than sorry. Again, Intel was a great one. AMD. The, that's where you're placing your bets. And uh, maybe we'll talk next time about your other projects uh, in the in the works as well. Kim, thanks so much for joining okay. us. It's a little tease. Thank you, Kim Forrest. Coming up, the attacks in the Red Sea continue to wreak havoc on shippers and the supply chain. Up next, we'll speak with one logistics expert on the cost of rerouting and the impact to companies' bottom lines. Plus, Wall Street legend Art Cashin joins us for a New York Stock Exchange tradition dating back more than a century. We'll also get his final thoughts on 2023 and his market forecast for the year ahead. Looking forward to that. As we head to break, here's a glance at markets. We're getting some rare red arrows on the screen. The Dow's down 72 points, so two tenths. The S&P's down four tenths to 47.64. The Nasdaq down six tenths. It was briefly below 15,000, and the 10-year note is backed up to about 388. The exchange is back after this. This is the exchange on CNBC. Hi, I'm Cindy Lauper. My scalp was covered with psoriasis. Felt like I was trapped between a rock and a hard place. Then I started Cosentix. Cosentix Secukinumab is prescribed for adults with moderate to severe black psoriasis, 300 milligram dose. Don't use if you're allergic to Cosentix. Before starting, get checked for TB. Serious allergic reactions, severe skin reactions that look like eczema, and an increased risk of infections, some fatal, have occurred. Cosentix may lower ability to fight infections, so tell your doctor if you have an infection or symptoms like fevers, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough, had a vaccine or plan to, or if IBD symptoms develop or worsen. Learn more at Cosentix.com or 1-844-COSENTIX. Cosentix works for me. Ask your doctor about Cosentix. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange. Rising hostility in the Red Sea could put more pressure on shippers heading into 2024. According to U.S. Central Command's post on X, the USS Mason shot down both a drone and an anti-ship ballistic missile in the southern Red Sea last night. There was no damage to any of the 18 ships in the area and no reported injuries. But this is the 22nd attempted attack by Houthis since October 19th. My next guest says shipping rates have skyrocketed this week and could be headed higher as factories in Asia close for the Lunar New Year. Joining me now is Alan Baer. He's president and CEO of OLUSA. Alan, welcome to you. Kelly, thank you for having me. Explain, happy New Year to you. Happy New Year. Well, hopefully happy New Year to you as well. Explain to all of us what your company does, what position you're in in the global supply chain, how you're affected by the Red Sea drama. We are a logistics supplier. We help importers and exporters move product around the world. Uh, we have uh, agreements with all of the major carriers and then help medium, small, and large uh, companies that are moving product uh, in and out of the United States, as well, as well as other countries around the world. So what percentage of, of your business or your exposure is through, for instance, the Red Sea Channel? Um, Red Sea alone, uh, maybe 15 to 20 percent. Mm -hmm. it, it's more a question of, of looking at our business through the lens of Asia overall, uh, because as the Panama Canal slowed down, uh, we had a lot of customers who then were starting to look at diverting cargo through the Red Sea and the Suez. Um, and now you have uh, a disaster in a sense at both canals, which which is changing everybody's logistic uh, map for the first quarter. What is the bet if the, you know, Panama was rerouting to the Red Sea is now rerouting to where exactly down, uh, you know, we're talking fully down beneath Africa or, or what are the, the routes available? So um, we're seeing a combination around the Cape of Good Hope, uh, Africa, as you said. Uh, we're also seeing still some ships come through the Panama carrying cargo that way. We also now have added interest in customers bringing cargo to the U.S. West Coast and then using both truck and rail to bring it across uh, to the East Coast that way. Uh, that way they can have a uh, more defined and uh, definite outcome of a delivery date if they need one. So what's the impact been on shipping rates? Kind of where were we in October before the Israel crisis erupted and where are we now? Um, anywhere from... 70 to 200 percent higher, hmm. I, I think, is a is a fair number. Uh, the West Coast rates have gone up in a sense, the least of that. And the East Coast rates are bearing the brunt. Uh, but even just in a very quick sequence from December 12th to December 15th to December 29th, you saw rates go up by 70 to 100 percent just in that sequence. Uh, where we had validity of rates from the 15th to the 31st of December. And then as of January 1st and again January 15th, um, as we approach the, the Lunar New Year holiday, the rates are projected to go up even more. Does this remind you of some of the price hikes we saw during COVID? Uh, to a degree, yes, but not uh, as dramatic. I, I think here you're seeing um, just the, the double canal effect. Whereas during COVID, you had the effect of not enough deep sea labor, not enough truckers, not enough warehouse, and then the combination of, let's call it the buying binge of stuff. And so you just had too much cargo, too little resources to handle that. Now it's, it's not so much driven by an over demand of cargo, 
but more uh, a lack of throughput be because of both canals uh, having issues. So if you've said, or sort of as you've explained it, I would have to imagine that outbound European cargoes headed for the U.S. East Coast, for instance, would be among the most affected by this. Is that true? And what kinds of end companies should we expect to see getting hit with price increases that might then be passed on to consumers? I think literally everybody in the supply chain right now is being impacted, whether you're the big box stores who ship the largest amount of cargo out of everybody. Uh, they need space just as badly as the small to medium sized company. Uh, they may have a little more negotiating power to not absorb the full amount of these rate increases and diversion costs. But by and large, uh, from what we're hearing, everybody is faced with absorbing this. And so whether it's the T-shirt the arriving at the store or food or machinery, um, auto parts, all of them at this point will be taking uh, part of that increase. Well, we'll have to bear watch. Uh, we'll have that bears watching. She tried to say because obviously we're trying to figure out what's going to happen with inflation, and here now presents a possible new source of, of goods inflation. I guess the last thing I would ask is: we've seen some major shipping companies with share prices go up because of this, because they're getting these higher uh, fares. What do you say to that response by sort of the markets and the investing community? Will they benefit, or will that benefit quickly be offset? Um, I, I think the benefit is there, um, as we saw um, during the, the COVID shipping time when rates really went through the roof. Um, the share prices uh, escalated at that point, too, when you look at 21 and 22. Um, I don't think this will be quite as dramatic, but clearly the move since mid-December through now has been up, as you say, by 20, 25 percent. I don't know that it goes so much higher. I mean, I'm not a stock picker per se in that sense. Um, I think we'll reach uh, an equilibrium of as the carriers get their ships uh, back organized and the routing starts to be more fluid, there should be a ceiling on the price uh, of freight rates at that point. And one would anticipate um, this won't be as long a time period as we saw with COVID. This could be a quarter or two at the most and um, then become more, the pricing, I think, will normalize again at that point as we move through the second quarter into the summer. Yeah, still probably a longer process than people would have thought just a, a month or two ago. Alan, thanks for joining us to explain. We appreciate it today. Thank you very much. Have a great New Year's again. You too. Alan Baer with OLUSA. Coming up, it's Meta versus Apple, Metaverse edition. The world's most valuable company is expected to release its Vision Pro headset early next year. Will it give the stock a boost or will Meta continue to outperform after topping Apple four to one this year? That's ahead in Tech Check. The exchange is back after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. We see red arrows in the markets today, although we're off session lows. Dow is down 171. A little while ago, we're down 89 right now. Uh, the Nasdaq is the worst performer, down six-tenths of 1%. Here are some of the movers this hour. We're watching shares of Fisker surging 15% after deliveries quadrupled from last quarter. The EV maker says sales and deliveries will accelerate in January, thanks to strong demand for its SUV called Ocean. Shares are still down 76% this year. Boston Scientific, meantime, hitting an all-time high after the company announced a new clinical trial for one of its devices meant to treat persistent atrial fibrillation. They expect the FDA to approve the device within the next three months. Shares are up 25% since January for their best year since 2019. Speaking of all-time highs, here are some of the other names recording that today. Hilton and Marriott, both up about 50% since January. Ross and TJX, also at new all-time highs, up a little less than 20% during this year. Fun fact, this will be TJX's 15th straight year of gains. It's up more than 1,700% since January of 2009. Extremely impressive. Coming up, it's an annual tradition on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Bob Bassani is there with the traders warming up their voices. Bob? Kelly, they are warming up their pipes right now. They have come from as far away as Florida. Current and retired members of the New York Stock Exchange are going to continue a tradition down here that has been going on for 160 years. When we come back, Art Patchett himself, the man, will be leading the floor in a legendary song. Don't go away. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's time for a New York Stock Exchange tradition dating back to the early 1900s. Bob Bassani is on the floor with Art Cashin and the NYSE traders. Hi, Bob. Hi, everybody. Hello, everybody. Hello, Kelly. The tradition of barbershop quartet singing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange goes back to the 1860s, believe it or not. But during the 1930s, a particularly rough time down here at the New York Stock Exchange, a 1905 song became a sentimental favorite. And for the past nearly 100 years, it's been sung every year here at the NYSE. Here to lead on the singing of Wait Till the Sunshine, Nellie, Art Cashin joining us. Arthur, take it away. Okay, on the count of three. One, two, three. Wait till the sun shines, Nellie, as the clouds go drifting by. We will be happy, Nellie, by and by. Down lovers lane we'll wander, sweethearts you and I. Wait till the sun shines, Nellie, by. Arthur, old friend, how many years we've we been down here doing this? 25, 26 for me, 60 for you. Your thoughts as we enter 2024 and exit an extraordinary year? Well, it would, it's the first time I got the words right after 60 years. No, uh, it, it, it was an eventful year. It uh, looks like it's ending up on a cheery note, and we can only hope that uh, we'll see that continue. Uh, the history of the market, particularly in an election year when the incumbent is rerunning for office, uh, has a history of being up 
Uh, that's probably because the administration can pump a little gas into the economy. But uh, we'll hope that the tradition holds up. And uh, we're still we're losing out a little bit on the Santa Claus rally this afternoon, but not enough to do complete damage. This time last year, sentiment was pretty glum. There were a lot of people who thought we were entering a recession. All that proved to be wrong. We had one of the great years we've had in the last 30 or 40 years. I don't know. Does this tell us anything about sentiment? Does it tell us anything about staying long the markets or how difficult it is predicting the future? Well, it, it, historically, what you want to do is stay long the market. Uh, over time, the market has improved as the economy traditionally improves. And therefore, what you get to do is compound your money. And as uh, no lesser light than Albert Einstein said, uh, compound interest and compounding money uh, are one of the great miracles of all time. And if you want to have your wealth grow, it's often best to uh, try and stay along the market and ride out the bumps. Um, some of us who uh, can't do that by nature because we, on behalf of clients, are asked to trade in and out. Uh, but it, I will tell you, after 60-some-odd years, it is very tough, but I think we'll have a good year. Before we let you go, the markets are really priced for perfection right now. Everyone's anticipating no recession. The Fed is going to cut interest rates with a certain number, maybe five or six next year. What's the one thing that worries you? What could upset this cheery scenario? Well, the um, geopolitical problems, obviously. You know, we've got uh, war breaking out in uh, several different areas. And, of course, uh, a great upset to many of us is that there are so many civilian casualties that are showing up. But, you know, we see the Red Sea being shut down and a couple of other economic uh, results from this going on. So I would be very careful of geopolitical surprises. Arthur, my first time down here with you, 1996. You were kind enough to let me in on the crowd. Thank you so much for your leadership, patience, uh, and mostly your guidance all through the years. These are retired and current members of the New York Stock Exchange. 120 showed up here today, many from as far away as Florida. Everybody, happy new year. Thank you for coming down and being with us. And Kelly, love you and look forward to being with you in 2024. You too, Bob. And hello to everyone down there. I miss seeing you guys. It's great to see some familiar faces again. And of course, to always hear the wise words from Art Cashin. Thanks, everybody. Happy New Year. We appreciate it. Big tech did well this year, but it was a different story for startups. Smaller, less profitable and privately held companies taking a hit thanks to higher borrowing costs. Many of them now face an inflection point in 2024. Julia Borston is here with a little preview. Julia? Well, Kelly, in 2024, VCs and startups are like are hoping for a rebound both in investments and also in IPOs. After this past year, the IPO market was very tight and VC investments dropped dramatically. There was a growing number of down rounds, investments made at lower valuations. Plus, this year, startups suffered from the implosion of Silicon Valley Bank and higher borrowing costs and thousands of startups went out of business. Now, Crunchbase forecasts that VC investments slowed in this fourth quarter, ending what they project will be the lowest year for venture funding since 2018, a 39% decline through December 21st to $462 billion invested in startups worldwide this year, with cutbacks across every different funding stage. Now, there was no surprise that AI bucked the downward trend with a 9% increase in investment in AI startups, bolstered by some very big checks written to OpenAI, Anthropic, and Inflection AI. 
Companies in the insure tech, semiconductor, and battery tech space did show gains. But Web3, it fell off a cliff. FinTech and e-commerce also saw big drops in investments in those startups. Now, next year, the good news, VC funding is expected to increase. There's forecasts that it will reach a level comparable with 2020, according to PitchBook. And that's in part because investors have plenty of dry powder. More than 4,000 funds were raised since the beginning of 2020. And the lower valuations we're seeing now may look to investors like a good opportunity. This according to PitchBook, which also projects that the number of VC firms will wane over the next few years after that big increase. Now, both PitchBook and Crunchbase forecast a return for some IPOs next year, but as investors are more focused on profitability rather than growth, startups that can delay an IPO until 2025 may decide to do so. But there are close to 1,500 companies with valuations of $1 billion or more. So there is a big backlog by some estimates, about 75 companies waiting to go public. So now in this volatile startup landscape, we are looking for the next round of Disruptor 50 companies. That's our annual list of fast-growing private companies changing the status quo. We are accepting nominations now. Go to cnbc.com slash disruptors or scan the QR code on your screen to learn more. Kelly? Yeah, and I'll be curious to watch more of the fallout, too, for the venture capital world. Julia, for now, thanks. We appreciate it. Julia Borston. Let's get to Pippa Stevens for the CNBC News update. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. The death toll from Russian missile attacks in Ukraine this morning is rising. 31 people are now confirmed dead and more than 120 injured, according to Ukrainian authorities, after missiles hit residential buildings in Kyiv. It's considered one of the largest missile strikes in the war so far. A price hike is coming to prescription drugs. According to data analyzed by Reuters, drug makers plan to raise the price on more than 500 drugs starting early next month. The anticipated price hikes would come as the Biden administration prepares to negotiate prices directly for some drugs beginning in 2026. And the struggle for recent MBA grads to get jobs is heating up even at the world's best business schools. According to Business Insider, only 86% of Harvard Business School grads had a job offer this year within 90 days of graduation. Last year, the rate was 95% and 96% back in 2021. Stanford reports a similar trend. Kelly, back to you. That's interesting. Pippa, thanks. We appreciate it. See you shortly, Pippa Stevens. Coming up, 2023 might have been the year of AI, but next year could belong to the metaverse. Yes, the metaverse. It could be making a big comeback. And there's a battle shaping up between two tech heavyweights. We'll give you details next. Welcome back. Remember the metaverse, the promise of virtual reality taking over the internet, workplaces, even social interactions? It hasn't exactly panned out yet, but the metaverse might get another boost in 2024. Steve Kovac has that story in today's Tech Check. Steve? Yeah, AI is so 2023. Let's just talk about the metaverse instead. That's because Apple is expected to launch its Vision Pro headset early in the new year, start of a new platform war, like back in the days when you had the PC versus Mac or iPhone versus Android. Well, now it's going to be Meta versus Apple. Meta has a head start, though, selling headsets for years, and that includes the new Quest 3, which launched this fall and appears to have been a really hot gift 
this holiday. And let's take a look at what Apple analyst Ming-Chin Kuo has said about the Vision Pro, though. It's muted expectations here, about 500,000 shipments expected throughout the year in 2024, largely in part because it's going to be a limited debut, at least at first, in the U.S. only and only at Apple stores. You can't go to Best Buy or anywhere like that to buy one. And the price is going to be a huge factor between these two. Meta's Quest 3 costs 500 bucks. Vision Pro, just $3,000 more than that at $3,500. Look, I've used both headsets. Meta has improved a lot, especially this generation, and especially with visual quality. But the Vision Pro from Apple, it's the next level. It has super clear visuals, great hand tracking for manipulating objects. It can track your eyes. It works just as advertised. The Vision Pro also has a better app ecosystem. It's going to be able to run any iPad app right out of the box on launch day. Meta has a smaller app library, but still partnerships with big names like Microsoft and several gaming companies. But overall, mixed reality headsets really haven't taken off yet. But Apple entering the space could change that. And if so, it's going to be the battle of Apple versus Meta, Kelly. I was chuckling when you said AI is so 2023 because the metaverse is so 2022. Yeah, exactly. 2021 even. Right. And yet here we are with it making a comeback. It'll be exciting to see how the Apple headset does and how much it changes demand for the product. I still think about what you said on Christmas Day where was it the Oculus was the number one downloaded app. So how would you compare the Oculus? Is that more of a gaming experience, whereas Apple's headset could be more broadly appealing? Sort of. Uh, I would describe them as both trying to do the same thing, but Apple's uh, experience, again, I've only had limited time with the Apple one, but it's it's like an elevated version of everything Meta's doing. So, I mean, it's almost like I'm looking at you right now, crystal clear, uh, whereas the Meta ones in, in the past have been a little blurry, mm-hmm. almost like looking through a screen door. And when I look at you, isn't it true that I can see your eyes blinking? That's right, yeah. So what you do is you scan, there's a front-facing camera on the Vision Pro, you scan your face, and it takes a photorealistic picture of your face, and then when someone's wearing it, you can see their eyes, so it almost looks like a complete face. You're not kind of like blocked out from the rest of the world like you are in the Meta headset, for and, sure. And what did you say the price point? Do we know yet? 3500 for the Vision Pro. 30. Just So that's going to el- immediately eliminate a lot of people, whereas the Meta one sells for 500 bucks, and they have an even cheaper one than that. And when do we expect them to launch any, it? Any time now. It At could its be, own I, kind of event? or No, I think we'll get a press release basically kind of saying, um, I, I would not be surprised next week or the week after. Really? We get the fi- yeah, we get the final details saying, you know, here's the launch date. Here's, you know, where you can buy one and so forth. But it's going to be limited. It's it's not going to be like going to buy an iPhone. There's just going to be a couple thousand at first hmm. uh, and only a couple hundred thousand by this time next year. My curiosity is peaked, I admit. Yes. I'm, I, I'll, I'll bring one on set. We'll wear it. It'll be fun. Do. Yeah. <laughs> Steve, thank you. Steve Kovac. Coming up, a lot of headlines this week from the overseas EV makers. China's BYD poised to surpass Tesla in sales. Vietnam's VinFast opening its first U.S. dealership. Is it time to jump into those names? We'll get three EV stocks to buy, including this one already up 44% this year and one to bail on in the new year. That's next. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. Massive price swings, big incentives, and tons of new competition. It's been a wild year for EVs. What will 2024 bring, and which names should you buy, and which are best to avoid? Joining me now for our final three buys in a bail of 2023 is Gina Sanchez, Lido Advisors Chief Market Strategist. 
Gina, welcome. Thank you for playing ball with us all year long here. And I'm, I'm excited about this one in particular. We've got a couple of different names. One of them is actually an EV ecosystem play you like, Schneider Electric. It's a French ADR up 44% this year for its third best year on record. It was our mystery chart. The EV charger and power grid tech manufacturer ending with a 10-week winning streak this year and making multiple acquisitions, even opening a charging depot for EV trucks in California. This is definitely a bit of an under-the-radar stock, but a really interesting story. You think it has more room to run? We do. I mean, this is a stock that already has a massive business even before the EV boom began. This is a stock that services, you know, uh, switches, grids, uh, and they are servicing utilities, even oil and gas infrastructure. But the, the you know, the, the move into EV for them was quite easy because they were in the business of making electric everything, you know, electric uh, switches, electric, you know, voltage, et cetera. And so this is the kind of stock that um, is going to win no matter who wins. You know, the problem is when you go up market, you start to get into the EV charging, you know, plays like EVgo, and those aren't even, they're not even profitable yet. So, you know, we think this is a stock that is going to continue to run no matter what happens with the EV play, but it is set to benefit hugely from it. You also like Albemarle. That's your next buy, even though, as many people know, it's down 33% this year, third worst year on record. Why would you buy this one? So this one is, you know, if you look at if you look at Schneider, Schneider's trading at 26 times. Albemarle is trading at seven times because a lot of that really negative news out of the potential regulatory challenges that they have in Chile are largely priced in. They are the largest, um, you know, miner of lithium. Lithium is the biggest, you know, the biggest component of batteries and, you know, the, the, the element that is the hardest to get your hands on. And they are, even if they do have challenges in Chile, A, that's priced in, and B, they are still much, much, much farther ahead than most of their competitors. All right. um, so we still see a moat for them. The third name is an interesting one because it's chip maker on semi, which is actually, as you point out, a supplier to EVs. And it's clawed back some huge losses over the past two months on that weak Q4 guidance. You'd pick it up here? Yeah, we do. Look, this is the stock that's going to outlive. Right now, we're going through a slowdown in all the semiconductors just because demand is falling. Um, but this particular semi, this particular semi, um, they make a a chip that is very, very well suited to electric charging. So rather than your you know traditional silicon chip, this is a this is a uh, carbide silicon chip, and this will actually a make charging faster and also make the car run more efficiently so your charge lasts longer. So this is exactly the chip that every EV maker wants in their car, regardless of who they are. Really interesting point. Okay, let's move on to your bail then, which is VinFast. They're trading below the $10 SPAC price. They're 80% off the early highs. The Vietnamese EV maker, they're still opening. Is it a U.S. dealership making a quarter million cars this year? They got a factory in North Carolina. You wouldn't give them a chance? You know, it's a hard one to play right now. I'm not going to say that that, that they can't make a go of it. But if you look at sort of, if you, you go back to when Tesla was first getting started, everybody was really, really fretting over whether or not they could make their numbers, whether or not they could figure out manufacturing. That was all done during a zero interest rate environment. Yep. Now we're in a five and a half interest rate environment. Investors cannot be as patient as they used to be. And it's really challenging if you have another five to 10 years of, you know, uh, of a true. long path to profitability. And that's where VinFast is. I think that's so true. I'm going to, in the five seconds remaining, I just got to ask you about Tesla itself. What about BYD? Are those a buy for you, Bale? <laughs> Interesting, because China is the single largest consumer of EV vehicles in the world. 
So, you know, if, if, if you're willing to step into China, these are interesting names. All right. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Gina, thank you so much. We appreciate all your time this year. Gina Sanchez with Lido Advisors. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. Dom is in for Tyler. Next on Power Lunch, we'll run you through the markets on the other side of this break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric CDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com.